Good news. My new book is almost here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth. And while it doesn't officially come out with Sounds True until May 7th, you can pre-order it now. And when you do, you'll receive up to $500 in additional gifts and resources to support you on your healing journey. I wrote this book because in the four-year span between 2016 and 2020, I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked every area of my life, health, relationships, finances, career, social status, and even my very identity. Along the way, I experienced firsthand just how dysfunctional our culture's relationship to loss really is. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success, shackled with isolation, and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and evolution, not only as individuals, but as a species. So this book expands the conversation around grief and loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we cover those too, to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. This includes the end of a relationship or job, death of a loved one, a natural disaster or a war, infertility, abortion, or a financial crisis. Also, when we're going through hard times, we're encouraged at every turn to hurry up and get on with it. But by trying to power through these messier seasons of life, we're denying ourselves the very answers to our healing and growth. Whether you're experiencing hardship right now, or you know that you have past hurts that are holding you back and still need healing, this book will support you. Handbook for the Heartbroken will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. Within the loving pages of this book, you'll have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically, find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. You can download your free chapter now and pre-order the book to receive all those bonuses at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. That's handbookfortheheartbroken.com. I also want to add that pre-ordering the book now is the very best way that you can support me as an author and the health of this book when it enters the world in May. It signals to booksellers to stock the book at that time and in turn, make it available to more people who need it. So thank you for your pre-orders. Thank you for your support. And I look forward to continuing to deepen together in this important conversation over the coming months. Hello, sisters, and welcome back to She Talks. I'm Sarah Von Stover, and in case you are joining us for the first time, I'd like to share with you a little bit of a background about this podcast. So She Talks is a space for you to come home to your inner wisdom, which I call your she. And in it, I offer spiritual teachings with a particular slant towards the sacred feminine. Because in the world of yoga and Buddhist meditation, I've felt really frustrated that both a feminine perspective and approach are sorely missing. Throughout the month of July, I'm offering a special seasonal series here called Poolside Sutras, and this is my summertime gift to you. In it, I'll be sharing feminine wisdom, answering the most common struggles you shared when I inquired 
what's holding you back the most in your women's yoga and meditation practice right now. I'll share stories from my own life and practice, hard-won insights, and life-changing lessons from my own beloved teachers and mentors. And since our summer schedules are usually disrupted because of travel and school vacations, these episodes are meant to be portable, keeping you connected to your practice while also being able to enjoy them on the go, like on a hike or a road trip or one of my favorites by the pool. And these talks will also help give you a taste of what I'll be teaching in my upcoming She Yoga and Meditation teacher training. This one week women's practice intensive for a maximum of 28 women. So it's really intimate. So I can give really personalized attention to each woman will take place in Calistoga, California in April, 2017. And although that feels like a long way away, it's actually not when we need to plan getting away from our work, from our families, from our lives. And because of this, I only open registration once a year, which is happening right now. Now, several years ago, I offered the world's first women's yoga teacher training. And since then, I've taught versions of it in Thailand, Hong Kong, Dubai, Mexico, Beijing, and at Kripalu in Massachusetts. But then I stopped teaching it a few years back so that I could really devote myself to writing my second book. Since then, countless of you have asked me to bring it back, and now I'm ready to do that. Not only am I bringing it back, but I updated this year's training to be the most comprehensive version that I've ever taught. I'll share the under the hood, life-changing techniques and principles that I've used in my own yoga and meditation practices for decades and that I've taught to thousands of women worldwide with great acclaim. So whether you're aching to support other women or just to deepen your own practice, you'll find the feminine heart of yoga and meditation there. And yes, we'll have a lot of pool time there too. So on to today's episode, I am sharing this talk in response to the challenges that many of you voiced about your yoga and meditation practice. Specifically today, your meditation practice and how to work with various obstacles that arise, both mental, emotional, physical, things like boredom and monkey mind and obsessive planning and knee pain. So we'll dive into all of that. But to start, I'll share a personal story that I can luckily laugh about now. <laughs> Humor is a good thing um, that illustrates how I learned to work with these types of obstacles in my own practice when the stakes were pretty high. So pull up your chaise lounge, soak in the twinkling blue view, exhale, and enjoy. In the first two episodes of this series, we focused more on the yoga aspect of our practice. And we're going to come back to that piece as well in the coming episodes. But today I really want us to focus on meditation. 
And I feel that meditation often gets kind of lost in the weeds of our lives. In a typical yoga class, there's not really time and space for meditation. There's a way that we hold a belief in this day and age that sitting still and quote unquote doing nothing is a waste of time. And that if we, that our time is precious and our money is precious and we need to be filling it with as much as possible. And this, I feel, is really a disease of this time in history and one that we need to take a really honest look at and see what, what parts of these beliefs do we hold within ourselves and, and challenge them because spiritual traditions throughout the ages teach us that we come to know who we truly are and what life is about in stillness and in silence. And it's in stripping away of all of the noise and distractions that we can actually let our false view of ourselves in the world fall away and the more accurate understanding of that, which is always here, which is ever present to rise up to the forefront of our awareness. So to dive into this topic of meditation, I want to share a little story that was fun and also a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is, maybe not sad, but challenging to remember. And Back in 2008, it was January of 2008, and I had just packed up all my things in Thailand. Um, I ended my career there, my my big teaching career. I was very much a fixture in the community there as a leader. I ended a relationship with a man that I was with for several years, and I just I knew that that chapter of my life of living in Thailand for nine years had come to a close. And I didn't quite know where I was going to go yet. I was really in a place where I could move anywhere. I was thinking maybe I'll move to New Zealand or maybe I'll move to France or Hawaii or San Francisco or Boulder, Colorado. And because I had a, a sister, I still have a sister who lives in Boulder, Colorado Actually, she lives in Denver now, but she lived in Boulder at the time. I shipped all of my things, the things I was keeping, that is, to her house here in Boulder. And I booked a two-month trip to India before I was going to fly home from India to the U.S. And my first stop, I flew from Bangkok to, uh, to Gaia. And I then took a a train to Bodh Gaya, which is a really major Buddhist pilgrimage site. And it is the place where the Buddha himself was said to awaken under that famous Bodhi tree. And I was going because I had heard such magical things about this place. And I was going to go on a 10 day Vipassana meditation retreat with a teacher from the UK. And I had heard great things about this teacher, great things about this retreat. And I was really excited about it. Like, okay, this is going to really kind of drop me into just a stiller, more centered place after my big move and ending this relationship. 
And I'm going to get just really strong and clear inside so that I'm going to have a great rest of my trip in India because I'd planned to go on to Varanasi and then to Rishikesh and then to fly out of Delhi after that. And I was just really excited about this trip and ready for an adventure. So we settled in for the retreat and immediately it did not live up to my expectations. I was sleeping on, it wasn't even a cot. It was like kind of like one of those camping hammocks. And I was in a room with a small room of, I don't even know how many, maybe like 10 women or something. It was way too many people in a small space. (laughs) And it was incredibly, incredibly dirty because Bodhgaya was very dusty and it hadn't rained in a long time and the streets were were dusty and anytime a car or a motorbike or um, a rickshaw, which is kind of like a bicycle taxi, would go by, just all this dust would just fly in through the windows and the white tiled floors were covered with the film of this brown dust. And soon all of my clothes were covered with this dust and our beds. And there was just really no way to stay clean. And as is quite common for these Vipassana meditation retreats, and Vipassana is is from the Theravada, from the Buddhist tradition. Uh, it's a, It's roughly translated as insight meditation. We had a quite rigorous schedule of waking up at 4 a.m. We had about, I think it was an hour to an hour and a half of embodiment practice where we could do any sort of movement that we wanted. And this was before the sun rose. And I always chose to go up to the rooftop of one of the buildings and do my yoga practice up there under the moon and the stars and to watch the sun rise across the horizon. That's one of my favorite things about India is how rooftops are so accessible. And whenever I travel to India, I always do my practice on the roof. And then we would have a full day of sitting meditation interspersed with walking meditation. And in the evenings, we would have a Dharma talk and more meditation and to bed at around nine so we could start all over again the next morning. And all of this was done in, in silence. And a couple of days in, I started to really not feel well. I started to get what I thought was at the time a really, really bad cold. And I often have a sensitive respiratory system. I remember when I was traveling in Nepal with the pollution in Kathmandu, I was just sneezing and my head was stuffy the whole time from from all the air pollution. So I didn't know if this was a cold or if it was just kind of an allergic reaction to all the dust. But I knew that I was very, very uncomfortable. So during our our long, you know, between 45 and 60 minute sits in without moving, my nose was like a faucet and it would just both sides, both nostrils was just like dripping, dripping, dripping snot down my face, dripping off my chin into my lap. 
And because it's a form of practice where we don't move, where we just sit with what is, I, you know, I wasn't lifting up my tissues to wipe my nose and I didn't have any, any medication or anything to help boost my immune system. I just had this raw, intense cold and it was really hard to stay awake as any of us who's ever had a cold, which is all of us, we know it makes us very tired. So a lot of times I was kind of nodding off in my practice and you know, if you fall asleep and you're start to fall asleep in your meditation practice, or it's similar to falling asleep on an airplane and you kind of catch yourself, you start tipping over in one direction and then you, oh my gosh, I'm falling asleep and you jolt back upright. Well, I was doing that many, many times in a row, as you could imagine. And what was worse than the physical discomfort that I was in was the mental and emotional discomfort I was in. And isn't that always the truth, right? That it's what we feel and think about something that is much worse than what it actually is. Because if I, if we just feel the sensations of stuffy head, sleepiness, running nose, those aren't really that, that bad. I mean, you know, they're uncomfortable, but they're not unbearable. But what was happening in my mind and in my emotional body felt more unbearable because I was just making a ruckus at that level. I was so disappointed. I had such high expectations for this retreat, for, you know, being the stoic meditator, being the pristine yogini, having this enlightened week-long retreat and leaving, you know, really healthy, really rested, really centered and just really ready for the next phase of my journey, really ready for the next phase of my life. And what I was coming across was just the opposite of that. I was getting more exhausted. I was feeling worse than I did when I was just running around Chiang Mai, Thailand, like a mad woman, bringing my things to the post office to ship and just tying up all my loose ends, saying goodbye to everyone. I was, I was more frazzled sitting still in this meditation retreat than I was when I was moving out of the country that I had lived in for a decade. Imagine that, right? So that cold did not subside, actually. Uh, I continued to be sick, I, but I continued to show up for my trip. So I spent some time in Bogaya after the retreat. I went up to Varanasi and did all my sightseeing there, enjoyed my time there, took the train up to Rishikesh. And it was in Rishikesh that I discovered that I was actually, I actually had an amoeba and I, I must have gotten it during my first days in Gaia through the water or through the food. But by the time I got to Rishikesh, I was incredibly, incredibly sick. And I was able to get some medication in Rishikesh to help turn things around, but I was still sick when I came back to the U.S. and still recovering. So none of that ended up being how I expected it to be. It, it was more uncomfortable than I had wished for myself. And I realize now in retrospect that that was exactly what needed to happen. I mean, how could after closing up a decade long period of my life, 
when I set out time to really digest from that and turn the page, of course, there's going to be an unraveling in my body and in my emotions. There's going to be an unraveling in myself. And a lot of times that can show up as an illness. And we all know that if we've done some sort of big output and we're able to hold in, hold on. And then when we finished it, when we've submitted the book manuscript, when we finished the project, when we've gotten through the crisis, that's when our bodies know like, okay, we can let down now. We can get the flu. We can get a cold. We can just stay in bed and rest and integrate. So what I really, what that meditation retreat really taught me in a very pronounced way is how painful it is to resist reality. And that how wonderful that that is really what I left that retreat with, because I had understood that at an intellectual level from the past 10 years of doing those types of retreats throughout Asia. But it was there that because the suffering was so deep in me that I really had to learn it at a cellular level. And when we make that shift from an intellectual understanding to a real embodied understanding, that is what we call an insight. When we just know something in our bones. And that that truth, that truism is that suffering comes from resisting what is, lives at the core of Buddha's teachings. And there I was doing a retreat in the place where the Buddha awakened to this truth, that when we stop resisting what is, we can reside in the freedom that is here underneath that resistance all along. So I tell this story because we all have our own versions of this. And this feeds into a really core misunderstanding that many of us hold about what meditation is. So meditation, before I say what meditation is, let me say what meditation is not. Meditation is not about silencing your mind. It's not about anchoring a tranquil state. It's not about not having distracting thoughts. It's not about eradicating physical or emotional discomfort. It's not about achieving an idealized state. Meditation is about becoming intimate with the moment just as it is. And whatever that moment holds, whether it holds like it did for me at that retreat in Bodh Gaya, a runny nose, a stuffy head, the inability to keep my eyes open, a dirty, crowded dorm room. Or maybe it includes your legs and feet falling asleep in meditation your back hurting from sitting, monkey mind, boredom, 
realizing that you just, you sit down and you just can't stop planning. You just can't turn off the planning mind where you just can't focus. You're all over the place. You, you try to make it through one breath without a distracting thought, but you can't even do that. And then you're frustrated and oh my gosh, I'm frustrated. And my meditation is a failure. Or maybe you're in a major life transition and you're too sad or depressed, you think, to practice. Or you're too antsy, you're too anxious, you're too ungrounded, you're too exhausted, you keep falling asleep. So all of these things, when we think that they're outside of meditation, they set us up for failure and they keep us from really experiencing the fruits of the practice. So in order to strengthen our spiritual muscles, we need a practice of sitting meditation. And let me say, a lot of times I get asked, well, when I dance, I get in a meditative state. Or when I run, I get in a meditative state. Or when I hike, I get in a meditative state. When I listen to music, when I play music, I get in a meditative state. I say, that's wonderful. So do I, but a meditative state is not meditation. A meditative state is a fleeting state of mind. It will come and it will go. But a seated meditation practice is what trains us to be with everything that comes and goes the good, the bad, the ugly, the uncomfortable, and allows us to then through that discover what is it that doesn't come and go? What is it? Who are we beneath all the flux and the changes in our minds, our bodies, and our emotions? What's, what's really real? What's really here beyond impermanence? So just as, you know, that example of dance, like you, you need to practice dance in order to be a dancer and to experience the fruits of the dance. You need to practice meditation to experience the fruits of meditation. So in meditation, nothing is a problem. We need to shift our view, kind of turn this paradigm upside down. Nothing is a problem. Everything is okay. Meeting yourself as you are, meeting the moment as it is, is the only goal. And I'll say it again, suffering comes from resisting what is. So let me, let me share a little bit more about meditation. There are many, many kinds of meditation. I practice and I teach Buddhist meditation. Obviously, for my 10 years in Thailand, that was really my core lineage. And I find that across all religions and faiths and dispositions and ethnicities that 
Buddhism is a really accessible philosophy for overcoming suffering and can be applied to anyone, anywhere, at any time. So in my practice and teaching of meditation, I especially draw upon the Theravada tradition that comes out of moved from India to Burma to Thailand. And that was what I first studied in Thailand. And from there, I went on to also study Vajrayana, which is Tibetan Buddhism and also some Zen Buddhism. And in Theravada and in Vajrayana, there are, and also in Zen, there are two phases of meditation practice. One is more of a concentration practice and one is more of an insight practice. So what we want to do when we come to our meditation, and I recommend a sitting meditation of at least 12 minutes a day. The concentration practice in Theravada is called anapanasati, and that is a concentration practice usually of just focusing on the breath, feeling the movement of the breath as it comes in and out of the nostrils. In the Vajrayana tradition, is called shamatha, which is translated as calm abiding. And that is where we kind of put blinders on to everything else. And we just focus our mind on our breath. And in this day and age, we need these types of concentration practices. So if you have a monkey mind, if you have a lot of restlessness, if you can't focus, if you're incessantly planning especially with all the time that we're spending on our screens and just developing a real lack of attention. You know, there's all these studies now that it's, it's hard for us to read a book because we're so used to jumping from looking at one thing to the next on our screens. So to have these concentration practices, and usually in a retreat, those will be maybe the first third up to the first half of the retreat, just to really help to calm and steady the mind. And then usually the second half to, you know, the last two thirds of the retreat is more of the insight practices where we simply let everything arise and we welcome everything into the field of our awareness. And we just rest with everything as it is without grasping to anything or pushing anything away. And in the Theravada tradition, that's called Vipassana. And in the Vajrayana tradition, that's called Dzogchen. So we have this, these concentration practices and then these awareness practices. And we all need both in different degrees. And we need the different practices and training in both to really find balance in our own psyches, our own minds, and to really experience the fruits of a meditation practice. So it's important to know that as we sit in meditation, you know, the Buddha also laid out five core hindrances that we all experience. And I speak more in depth about these in live, my live retreats and intensives because they come up more strongly and we can really look at just how they live in us in a real life way. But I'll just list them out now. The first is craving. 
you know, really wanting something, desiring something, whether that's a certain food or a certain someone to like us or a certain thing to happen in life. And there's aversion, which is wanting something to not happen, like wanting to not be so hot, wanting to not be so cold. In the case of my retreat in Bodh Gaya, wanting to not be sick, wanting things to not be so dusty. There's doubt. Yeah, maybe this practice isn't working for me. Maybe I shouldn't have come to this retreat. Maybe I should be doing something else other than sitting and meditating. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I'm just not cut out for this meditation thing. Then there's lethargy, which could keep you from even coming to your practice. Just listlessness, laziness. Or maybe it's causing you to fall asleep on your meditation cushion. There are ways to skillfully work with that, just as there are ways to skillfully work with all of these hindrances to add to our practice toolkit. And the last one is restlessness, which I think is the biggest hindrance that we face in this day and age, which I mentioned at the start of this talk. It's that just not being able to sit still, being too antsy having resistance to actually sitting down and not doing stuff, just being. Always needing to have some sort of entertainment or fingers in something or other. So it's important to know that these five hindrances are aspects of the mind. And if you're a human, you have a mind. And if you have a mind, you have these five hindrances. And a meditation practice isn't about getting rid of them. It's about learning to be with them in a skillful way. So whenever you come to your meditation practice, remember this. And remember that we need to have the skillful means. We need to have the practices to know how to work with anything that is arising in our body, heart, mind, in any moment. And there are practices, many practices, ageless practices that work, that lead to freedom, that lead to liberation, that lead to unchaining yourself from pushing and pulling life to try to be something other than it is. So we call on these skillful means, and then we also strengthen that muscle of being with what's here and learning the appropriate use of the skillful means and the being with what is here, that radical acceptance in any and every moment. And if we take those 10 to 15 minutes, ideally up to 30, 45 minutes a day, depending upon where you are in your level of yoga, of, excuse me, meditation practice. We need that time to drop our agendas, to really see what we do when we're presented with things that we don't like or things that we want 
And then when we, when we go out to live the rest of our life that day, it helps us to be a better person. I, I say this so sincerely for myself. When I do this practice in the morning, I am a better person for the rest of the day. Without a doubt, I notice a radical difference when I don't do this practice. You're going to have to try it out for yourself. See for yourself. See what the benefits are. And then the benefits just accumulate over time. We become more accepting, less reactive, more able to pause and notice the impact of something before we speak or act. We're able to move through life crises and challenging moments with more grace and stamina and patience because we know what it's like to sit with boredom, to sit with monkey mind, to sit with sleepiness, to sit with our anxiety, to sit with pain in the body. We've done it in those smaller doses. So when life gives us a big dose of hardship, we have the muscles to make it through and to extract the gifts that we need to in order to move forward, in order to grow, in order to become who we're here to be. So don't brush your meditation practice to the side. If you don't have a meditation practice and if you feel called to have one, start one. Don't wait for next season or next year. And remember that Meditation, just like yoga, is something that we continue to deepen in over time and we do reach plateaus. We we can reach places where we feel bored and we feel like our practice isn't working anymore and it's just we're just kind of at a standstill. And and those are the times when you need to go sit with your teachers, you need to go to a meditation retreat, you need to go to an intensive, you need to Practice within a group of people to be re-inspired, to be lit up again, at least, at least once a year. Hey, okay, just like you, it's not good to go a year without going to the doctor. Or it's not good to go a year without doing a cleanse or going on a vacation or spending quality time with family. It's not good to go a year without really devoting quality time to your practice life to really nourish and fertilize this inner garden of your being, which you can then draw upon for the rest of the year. It's really one of the best investments you can make in yourself. So have courage, have patience. If you have hard moments in your meditation practice, remember me on my meditation cushion in Bodh Gaya, just sick as a dog. <laughs> and that in even the most harrowing moments, there are huge lessons to be learned. And there are huge opportunities for growth. Now, I structure all of my online and in-person gatherings to have a really contemplative retreat-like atmosphere. To do that, we have periods of silence, as well as stretches of time where we engage with one another with presence and mindfulness. 
we turn off our devices, spend time in nature, engage in embodiment practices and eat really great food and intentionally step away from our other life obligations so that we can tend to our precious inner gardens. And our upcoming Shi Yoga and Meditation teacher training is no different. Each day we'll have three guided meditation sessions in the early morning, the mid-afternoon, and at the end of the day in the evening. And during the rest of the day, I'll lead you through women's yin and flow yoga sequences while also sharing how to teach all of these to other women, should you be interested in becoming a teacher. In between, we'll have times for solo walks in nature, journaling by the pool, naps, or sharing those delicious, healthy meals together. So if you want support in coming home to yourself by starting or deepening your meditation practice, or in leading others to do the same, I invite you to come on over and explore the She Yoga and Meditation Teacher Training at sheyogatraining.com. Early registration discounts end on July 15th, and regular registration closes about a dozen days after that, just at the end of July. It would be a huge honor to hold your hand and shine the light on your path and also to give you a big hug in person, which is becoming more and more rare in this virtual world. Uh, And I do that when we meet in California together next April. So until our next episode in a few days, I am sending you my heartfelt support and thank you so much for being part of our sisterhood.